Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, if you would. Acts chapter 19. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 8. Uh, well, let's go back. We'll back up and, and read beginning. Well, let's just begin reading in verse number one because there's not really a good starting place in this narrative. So we'll start at verse number one and read down through verse 20. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse one and reading down through verse 20. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened, that is, there were a number of folks who didn't receive very well what he was saying, their hearts were hardened. When they were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of the way before uh, the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the disciples, or I'm sorry, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit and said, answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was, was leaped on them, and uh, overcame them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And what a, what a picture that must have been. Uh, these people who uh, are confronting an evil spirit, and the evil spirit said, wait a minute, I don't know who you are. You don't have, you don't have a lot of power. And, uh, and they turned on them and sent them running. Uh, uh, verse number 17. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. They counted the price of them and found it 
50,000 pieces of silver. And then verse 20 says, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, in this passage of scripture, we have a number of different things. Uh, several upon which groups of people who call themselves Christians have chosen to establish a certain practice or doctrine based on events that transpired during this time. For example, the thing about speaking in tongues and uh, the fact that Paul gave them handkerchiefs and aprons and, you know, and so you've got these prayer handkerchiefs that people, you know, the, the guys on TV, send me, you know, $50 and I'll send you a prayer, prayer, prayer cloth and, and use that and then it'll take care of whatever you've got. Like there was some power in the cloth. Uh, obviously, the power, there's no power in a piece of cloth. Uh, there's no power in uh, a handkerchief or an apron. The power is, is the Lord's and he does as he sees fit. And, uh, and there's, there, there, there are other things in here. But the point I want to make, the, the point we're talking about today, is this statement in verse number 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. That's a pretty bold statement, and it's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty strong statement. Uh, the word of God grew and prevailed. So what led to this growth? Well, if you look through, you see in verse number 8, Paul boldly disputed with those in the synagogue for three months. Verse 9 says that there was no results. I mean, Paul preached. Paul, Paul gave the truth very boldly for three months. No, no response. Verse number 10, we find out this continued by the space of two years. So he went on for two years doing this, and during that two years, verse 11 tells us that God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse number 13 tells us there were some who tried to imitate what Paul did and uh, didn't have much success. That's the, those who, who tried to, to uh, give commands to the, the evil spirit, and the evil spirit said, hey, we don't know who you are. You, you know, you, you, you have no power over us. But then we learn in verse 18 that there were many conversions. It says many that believed came and confessed and showed their uh, 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 and showed their deeds and uh, and they brought their books together. They burned them and uh, and it was a pretty big deal because the the price of them that they burned was fifty thousand pieces of silver. And then it says in summation so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So what was entailed in the conversions that took place? Well, there were three things. First of all, there was confession. Um, that's a requirement for, uh, uh, for salvation. We must acknowledge our sin. It's, uh, it's one thing to say, I'm sorry that I did that. It's another thing to say I was wrong for what I did. Uh, Jonah was sorry that he ran from God. He never confessed that what he did was wrong. You read the entire, the entire, all four chapters of the book of Jonah, you'll not find anywhere a confession 
from the prophet Jonah. He never confessed. He acknowledged that he was wrong. But in the very end, he ended up being a very bitter man because he didn't like what God chose to do. He knew God was going to pardon. He didn't like the Ninevites. He did not want them to be pardoned. And so he got angry at God for what God had done. And, and it was all based on his selfish desire. So he ran from God. God said, you're not, you're not doing that. And he put him in a position where he didn't have a choice. But he never did it freely or willingly. He did it because he was required to do it. God made him do it. And he never acknowledged that his bitterness, his hatred for the Ninevites, and his, and his refusal initially to preach to him, he never, never acknowledged that was wrong. That's not confession. He prayed out of the belly of the whale, which meant that he was wanting God to get him out of there, but he never, never one time acknowledged that he was wrong. These folks confessed that what they did was wrong. Confession means you say the same thing about it that God said. That if God says it's wrong, then we have to say it's wrong. So there was confession. Then there was, secondly, there was change. Things changed. They, they came and and, and burn their idols, and they did so without a concern for what it was going to cost them. When we talk about sacrifice, sometimes we, we think about sacrifice. We, we, we give uh, something we have, or maybe we give it an offering or whatever. We talk about sacrifice. You understand that sacrifice is not sacrifice unless it costs you something. Remember David... Uh, uh, at Arona's threshing floor, he was he was going to buy it so he could, you know, serve the Lord and sacrifice. And uh, and Arona said, "Well, you don't have to buy it. I'll give it to you." And what did David say? "I will not give unto the Lord that which doth cost me nothing." Costing giving out of our surplus, out of something we don't don't need, is not that's not a sacrifice. Um, years ago youth pastor in a church in Dayton, Ohio. And, uh, and we had a, uh, a youth camp there. And there was some work needed to be done before camping season. And, and we're having a hard time getting folks to come. And, and I was trying to get people to come help us, you know. And, and, uh, and they, they would say things like, well, let me see what my schedule's like. And I'll, if I've got time, I'll, I'll come down there or whatever. And so uh, they gave me an opportunity to preach, and I preached on giving God our spares. That's what many Christians do. They give God what they have left over. If I've got time, then I'll do it. How about saying, I'll do it, and then if I've got time, I'll do this other thing I want to do. So often we put our desires ahead of what we give to God. And we give God what we have left over. That's not a sacrifice. That's not a sacrifice. That which cost us something is a sacrifice. These folks, when they burned their idols and they counted up the cost, it ended up being 50,000 pieces of silver. So they gave, they gave up something they should not have had because they were idols, but it cost them something. And they were willing to do that. Confession and change is part of that process. And the third thing was consecration. 
they gave themselves to the Lord. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, two years, many miracles, a lot of dis- disputing, a lot of, of disagreement, a lot of contention, a lot of battles that went on. And, uh, and yet at the end of two years, there were, there were many who put their trust in Christ. There was obvious evidence that these people were, were, there were two things true about these people. Number one is they were saved. And number two is they were growing. So here's the question. What was the source of the power? Well, the answer is it was the Word of God. The Word of God was responsible for their conversion and the changes in their lives. Now, I, don't, I have no idea, and, and the Bible doesn't tell us how many of those people that got saved were there in the beginning when Paul started preaching. We have the mindset in our society today that reaching people with the gospel is backing them into a corner and getting them to pray a prayer. It's, it's confronting them and, and immediately getting a confession out of them or getting, the, getting a, a acknowledgement that they want to go to heaven is what it, what it amounts to. We give them to pray a prayer and we write their name down and say, that person got saved. Well, it'd be wonderful if they really did, but we don't know if that's true or not. And to be very honest with you, most people do not get saved like that. Most people hear the word of God and over time, the Spirit of God does work in their heart and they realize their need of a Savior. And it becomes more than just a ticket to get out of hell and go to heaven. It becomes a realization that there's a holy God in heaven. He's sovereign. And, and, and I, I have offended Him. What I, what I do is wrong. I'm sinful. It's hard for man to acknowledge that he's sinful. It's easy. You, you say, are, are, are you a sinner? Well, I'm, I do the best I can. I've heard that over and over again. I do the best I can. Well, yeah, but are you a sinner? Well, uh, it depends on what you mean by sinner. And we look at our neighbor and think, that guy drinks and he's involved in all kinds of evil. And, and I'm a good guy. I do what I'm supposed to do. I take care of my family. I pay my bills. I live a clean life. I'm not a bad guy. That kind of thinking will keep a person from getting saved because you don't realize they have need of a Savior. The first thing that has to happen for a person to be able to get saved is they have to, to be willing to acknowledge that God is sovereign and God is holy and I don't measure up. There's a reason why we start with Romans 3.23. All sin comes short of the glory of God. Um, that there's none righteous, no, not one. But it's not just a simple matter of saying, well, we all, we've all done it. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? You ever, you ever told them? You're all sitting there like, looking at me like you think, you must be talking to somebody else. I've never told a lie. We've all told lies, and, and we use that as a, uh, you know, well, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I never, never think big, just a little white lie, you know. And we justify it and we make it light and it's not a big deal or whatever. But the truth is our sin is offensive to a holy God. And people need to understand that if they're going to 
realize their need to 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 make their 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 make their sin they can't make their sin right but they they know that they have to get rid of the sin and they need some help doing that because they can't do it on their own and that's where salvation comes in so we don't know how many people of these who got saved had been listening to him for two years who had heard him multiple times but the bible says that it was the word of god that had the impact was the Word of God that prevailed mightily. The Word of God, the Bible says, grew and prevailed. And so the power that brings a person to Christ is not in our persuasion. It's not in our clever way to present the gospel. It's in the Word of God. And hearing the Word of God repeatedly has an impact in the life of an unsaved person. Now, here's the thing. It should also have a huge impact in the life of somebody who knows the Lord. And more so with us, because we understand the power of Scripture. It was through the Word of God that we regained a relationship with the Lord. It's through the Word of God that we gained assurance of our salvation. I have confidence that I am redeemed. And that the Lord is caring for me. He's taking care of me. He hears my prayers. All of those things are true because of the Word of God and what I've experienced. What God has shown me over the years. The times when I prayed and God has answered my prayers. The times when God provided needs that we had before I even knew I needed it. And times when I was doing everything I could to solve a problem and making a big mess of it, and the Lord worked it out anyway. All of those things are things that happen in our lives that will produce confidence in our heart regarding our relationship with God and what He's doing in our lives. But all of that, all of that comes from the Word of God and what God was doing in our lives. The Lord was responsible, the Word of God was responsible for their conversion and the change in their lives. So, I want to give you three things, three things that are true about the process by which growth occurs, all of which are seen in this passage. Number one, the Word of God is planted. Verse number eight, the Bible says, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Verse number 10. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all which they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. In the book of Matthew, the word of God is likened to a seed. Now, you know how seed works. You plant a seed in the ground, you cover it up, poke a hole, put the seed in the ground, cover it up. And, uh, and when you do that, uh, you don't go to bed that night and come up the next day and pick the fruit off of the plant. It doesn't happen that way. The seed stays in the ground. And it gets watered. And little by little, it begins to, it germinates and it begins to grow. And after a while, it puts down little roots and then see little, little bits green sticking up through the ground. And you realize, hey, it's working. It's growing. 
And uh, and over time, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's hard to imagine that such a huge plant or a tree or whatever comes from a little seed. That's where it, that's where it begins. Well, that's what happens in the in the lives of those who hear the word of God. The word of God is sowed in the heart of an individual through preaching or or personal study, and its influence is determined by three things, uh, by two things. Number one is how we receive it. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, the Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. How we receive it. How do you receive the word of God? You come to church and you sit and listen. And uh, do you do you look at the Word of God objectively, or do you have your mind made up before you see it? Now here's here's the thing: people over the years, theologians have studied the Bible, and studied the Bible, and studied the Bible, and they have designed systems that explain everything about the Bible. And I mean, they've got it all worked out. They they know, you know, what the the tree stands for and what each limb stands for and what each leaf on each limb stands. You know, I mean, they 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 can count everything and get it all and put it all together, and it and it always makes a lot of sense. Everything just fits. And they've got an answer for every question that you ask them. You know what? I've never met a person who knows the answer to all the questions. If this book and what's in it is is if it's if it's possible for us to understand everything that's in it so that there's never any question about it, then then we are having too much confidence in our own, own ability. Because there are things in this book that we have to trust. We have to just believe what God says. We can't explain it. The Bible says, whosoever believeth on him has everlasting life. You look up the word everlasting in the dictionary, and you're not going to get a clear definition of it. Because it'll say something like never-ending. Well, that's what everlasting means. But that really doesn't answer the question of what does it mean to be everlasting? You know, I mean, I here, here's the problem. I can't understand everlasting because that does mean no end. And everything I know anything about has an end. I mean, I'm human. So we are, we are confined by both time and space. It baffles me to think about the fact that God is omnipresent, which means that he is not confined at all by time or space. He is everywhere, always, at the same time. From eternity past to eternity future. Now, if you, if you, if you, look at that and think about that and you say, yeah, I got that figured out. 
There's something wrong. You're, you're, you're trying to buffalo people. Because that's not possible. And, and everything that we read in the Word of God about, about our Heavenly Father is beyond our comprehension. So, so how do we receive what we... There, there are too many people, and preachers are absolutely guilty of this. We come to the Scripture with our preconceived ideas about how everything is supposed to be. When I got, when I got done with college, I felt like I was in pretty good shape. I mean, I, got, I had my degree. I had studied. I, I not only majored in Bible, but I minored in Greek. I not only knew what it said in the, in the English, but I knew what the, the, I could look it up, you know, and I, and some of it I knew, I, I knew from memory what the words meant and what, you know, I mean, I, I understood the, you know, well, conversation actually means lifestyle, not talking. And there, I mean, you go through a bunch of that kind of stuff. And I had that all figured out. So I knew I was, I was in good shape. So when people ask me questions, I had an answer for everything. But the longer I preached and the longer I studied, the more I realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure that's exactly what this means. What I thought is not exactly what I... And I, I, I you know, as I read it and I... That doesn't fit with what I've thought all these years. And my thinking began to change, and I realized that I had been looking at the Word of God through blinders. I had it all figured out, and I was looking at it a certain way. And you know, when you do that, you limit the power of the Scripture because you keep it from being able to do the work that it, it needs to do in our hearts. So how we receive it is important. We need to receive it with open hearts, with an eagerness for the Spirit of God to show us clearly what the Bible is saying. Now we have a great advantage. Unsaved people can't, they can't understand the Bible. And, uh, and we talked about this a, a while back. The only message that they need to hear is that God is the sovereign God of the universe and he created everything and he, we're separated from him and they need to put their trust in him. That's the only thing that they can understand. We can spend all kinds of time trying to persuade them of, about creation and all different kinds of things, but they have to have a concept of who God is and what our relationship to him is or they're not going to make any progress at all. The Bible says that those who are unsaved, 1 Corinthians, it talks about they, they can't understand. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him because they're spiritually discerned. But you and I, we know the Lord and the Spirit of God lives in our heart and He's the one who will give us instruction from the Word of God if we receive the Word gladly. If we receive it eagerly and we let the Spirit of God do the work that needs to be done in each of our hearts. So how we receive it is going to have, a, have an impact on, 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 on how the Word of God grows 
and prevails with us, and then secondly, how we respond to it. There are people every, every week go to church, they sit in the service, and they listen, and they hear something that is a little different than what they were expecting, maybe, and they say, well, that doesn't fit. And besides that, you know, I know he's saying, he's saying that. He's talking about, about uh, maybe about lying or about cheating or about being dishonest or it could be any number of things. And, and we say, yeah, that's, you know, we shouldn't do that. But, I, you, know, this, that, what, you know, what I did was not really dishonest. Um, one, of the, one of the big things, and I think it happens probably more often than we want to acknowledge. But you go to the store and you go to buy something and uh, you know the, they've got everything set up now where there's a barcode and it scans it and it's supposed to have the right price. Now I'm all for checking to make sure that the barcode scans the price that's on the shelf. If it doesn't, I'm my memory is not great in a lot of areas, but I can remember what the shelf price was on that item. And I can let them know if it's not right, especially if they have a scan guarantee. Kroger's, Kroger has a scan guarantee. You go in there, and you may not have known it, but they do. If it scans above the price of the, of the shelf price, then you're supposed to get that item free. That's what it says. If you don't believe it, I got, I got a picture of the sign that says it on my, on my phone. I show it to the cashier when she questions whether, and, and the cashier will say, well, I never heard of that. Well, here it is. That's what it says. Let me get a manager. And then the manager comes over and they'll, and they'll do it, but they, they want to. Well, I'm going to hold them to that. You know, they're, they're responsible. We don't have the price on the item. So if it scans more than what the shelf price says, and I'm going to say, wait a minute, you made this mistake. Your, your promise is that if you make that mistake, you'll give it to me free. I'm going to hold you to that. But what if it goes the other way around? What if, what if somehow one item gets past the cashier and it gets put in the bag, which happens very often, and, uh, and, and it doesn't get scanned? Do you make a point of Oh, wait a minute, did you get this? Make sure. Because I have a responsibility to pay for what I buy. And there are those who say, well, it wasn't my fault. I didn't, you know, they should have been more, they should have been paid more attention. That's a, uh, that's a very poor way to try to justify doing something the Bible says we shouldn't do. That's just one example. There are a lot of things, and we, we are, you know, we just need to be careful that when the Spirit of God makes us aware of something in our life that doesn't match up to what Scripture says ought to be true in our life, that we respond to it properly. Saul lost his kingdom because he justified what he did when what he did was to disobey God. He said it wasn't me, the people did it. He tried to to, to blame somebody else, and the Lord, the Lord said, "Okay, that's it. You're done as king." He lost his kingdom because he was unwilling to own up to what he had done. If he had responded, 
with confession, when even though he did wrong, if he had responded with confession, I think I think the Lord would have forgiven him. But he chose not to. And he paid a great price for it. The seed is not just for unsaved people, it's for Christians as well, and it affects many areas of our lives. And we need to be conscious of what the Lord is saying to us. The Word of God is planted. Secondly, the Word of God persuades. Look at verse number 8 again. The Bible says, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. It will persuade those who are ignorant, those who are indifferent, and those who are independent. And, uh, and I'm not talking there necessarily about unsaved people. I'm talking about Christians too. Uh, there are Christians who are not as, uh, not, none of us know as much about the scripture as we should know, so we're ignorant in some ways, but being indifferent or being independent, those are certainly not good qualities when it comes to allowing the word of God to persuade us. Look at verse, down in verse number uh, 26. It says, moreover, we see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that there be no gods which are made with hands. Paul, through the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, was used and, uh, and, and uh, his preaching, the Lord used it to persuade people. And then finally, not only is the Word of God planted and the Word of God persuades, but number three, the Word of God prevails. Again, verse number 20, so mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. You know, this book is the greatest weapon we have in turning back the evil of unbelief, turning back those who reject the truth, because this is the truth. There is... You know, there, there, there's no new truth, and, um, and it doesn't matter what people say about it being their truth. There is no new truth. The only truth we have is the truth we have in the Word of God, and God is the author of all truth. And truth doesn't change. It's not different now than it was 40 years ago or 100 years ago. The application sometimes is a little different, and things are, are different in our society. Uh, talking recently with someone about about uh, the early church and what it was like and and the, the statement was made well if you know they're, they're, they didn't have what they have today you know we didn't have cars that we could drive back in the days of the early church it was neighborhoods houses people that met together and now we build big massive buildings and we get people to come from all over the countryside and some churches run buses an hour and a half one way to get people to bring them to church. So they have more people at church. I'm trying to reach people, but they have more people at church. Bigger church. Go start a church out there an hour and a half from where you are. Get somebody to go out there and, and, and plant a church there. Where you, because it's not, it's not possible, even with our, our technology and our transportation, for a pastor to pastor people that live an hour and a half away. That's not a good. That's not a good way to do it. Churches are supposed to be in, in local communities, and uh, so yeah, things are different, 
the technology is different, the transportation is different, <coughs> communication is different. <coughs> Excuse me. There are a lot of things. But still, the early church was built around a local congregation and then meeting together <coughs> and the Word of God making a difference in their lives. The Word of God prevails. It will influence your life. One of two things will happen. Either it will, <coughs> verse number 9, harden you. The Bible says, but when divers were hardened, hardened, Certain ones of them were hardened. How you respond to the Word of God is going to determine whether you are hardened by it. You know, you read about uh, Pharaoh, the book of Exodus. The Bible says repeatedly that he hardened his heart. And then it says that God hardened his heart. Well, when you respond by rejecting the truth, then every time we do that, we're hardening ourselves against the truth. It's either going to harden you or it's going to change you, verses 18 and 19. Many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, bought their books together and burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found them found it 50,000 50, pieces of silver. Those those people are changed. It's either going to harden you or it's going to change you. And the difference is going to be determined by how we receive and how we respond to what we hear. The Word of God grew mightily and prevailed. That's what's supposed to happen in our churches. That's what's supposed to happen when we when we meet together. That the Word of God has an impact in our lives, makes a difference in what happens in our lives. And I pray that that's what's happening in your life. Stand together with head bowed on his